With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Brentford Football Club, sandwiched between London's West End and Heathrow Airport, currently play in the top flight of English football, having gained promotion to the Premier League in 2021. The recent form of Brentford would suggest to many unfamiliar with the club's history that this team from West London are an experienced Premier League outfit. With hopes of European football next year and with players like Ivan Toney, Ollie Watkins and Saeed Benrahma all contributing to Brentford's recent success, you wouldn't naturally think that this club has gone through turmoil in the not-so-distant past that could have seen them cease to exist. But this club has. From finishing fifth in the first division to potential takeovers by bitter rivals to proposed relocations to Surrey, Brentford's journey to the Premier League has been, quite literally, up and down. On the Ealing Road podcast this week, I sit down with Mark Chapman, a committee member at Brentford's Independent Association of Supporters, to walk through the history of Brentford Football Club. I've been researching the club's history since I was, seriously, since about 15, 16. I'm 48 now, so uh, uh, it's about 32, 33 solid years of, uh, well, you know, kids and uh, etc. getting in the way and, and life, but... I've always had that passion for research for the football club. So um, I know quite a lot about it and it's sort of right the way back from day one when they, they, they formed the club uh, mm. in the, the Oxford and Cambridge uh, pub right up to sort of present day. Uh, it sort of sometimes gives you comfort on the bad days. The main focus of my conversation with Mark was the history of Brentford Football Club following the proposed takeover of Brentford by QPR in 1967. So here's a brief history of Brentford from their formation in the late 19th century right up until the 1960s. Formed in 1889 by members of a rowing club, Brentford's early history was spent playing in the first and second division Southern Leagues, moving to Griffin Park in 1904. The last Southern League season was played in 1919 following the end of World War I, and in 1920 Brentford were elected into the Football League as founder members of the third division. In 1925, Brentford dropped their original salmon, claret and blue kit for the red and white stripes we see today. And a year later, Harry Curtis, Brentford's longest serving and most successful manager, was appointed. A remarkable three-year spell from 1932 to 1935 saw Brentford climb the third division to the highest tier of English football. The Bees finished in fifth place in the 1935-36 season, their all-time highest finish. After the resumption of football following World War II, Brentford were relegated from the first tier in 1947, again to the third tier in 1954, and then once more in 1961 to the fourth tier. Curtis's 23-year reign ended in 1949 in a season that saw over 38,000 people attend Griffin Park for a sixth-round FA Cup replay against Leicester City, a record high. Many of the following years saw Brentford yo-yoing between the third and fourth tiers of English football. That was a very quick summary of Brentford's history pre-1960. But it's in 1967, when Brentford's finances were in tatters, that this story takes a turn. Yeah, lucky enough, I was a programme editor until, well, for five years. So up until recently, I say recently, it was six years now since I've gone. Um, and part of that was the 50th anniversary of the of the takeover. So I managed to get a lot of interviews and I did for the 40 years as well, actually. So I know quite a lot about it. Mm-hmm. Ultimately... The reason why football clubs get into trouble is that they overspend. And that's what they did in the 1960s. And this is what led up to the crisis in 1967. So we've just come out of an era, a post-war era in 1950s, where Brentford did not have a lot of money. The ownership by the, the, the Davis brothers, who were local businessmen, 
they kept the club afloat, but actually the club was declining and declining. We missed out on promotion in 1958 and in 59. We had a lot of part-time players after that. Uh, in 1961, we sold Jim Towers and George Francis, our two top goal scorers, to Queen's Park Rangers on the same day in the summer of 1961. And uh, 12 months later, we're relegated to Division 4 for the first time. Uh, you don't want to go up, Brentford. That's been uh, shouted so many times before the, the modern era. Uh, but that was a really big signal to the local population that Brentford weren't really ambitious. But one person came in and thought he could turn that around. And that guy was Jack Dunnett. Now, mm -hmm. he was elected as uh, a board member in 1961 and shortly became chairman. And uh, after that, the money uh, loosened up. So in 1962, when the club were relegated to Division 4, he bought a lot of players uh, we had an uh, an international forward line from all the home countries that had played internationals uh, international football for their country. Uh, we won Division Three in 1963. There was investments made in the ground. There were proper uh, the old floodlights that we used to know and love at Griffin Park. They were put up around about that time. Club offices were refurbished. A lot of capital, a lot of expenditure went into the football club. Um, now, that was a punt at Jack Dunnett, who uh, had also by then become an MP for Nottingham. So he was a go-getter in the 60s, uh, so to speak. Uh, and also liked the attraction of being the owner of a, a football club that was very well regarded at the time. Still a big name uh, that had fallen on hard times. He was uh, pumping in capital to try and get Brentford into the second division, which they'd not been for you know eight or nine years. Um the axis point, you you could you could say, was in August 1965, the opening day of the season. We play Queen's Park Rangers at home in front of more than fifteen thousand people. Rangers have spent a lot of money that season uh, that summer, and we absolutely tonked them six one. So the local newspaper headline at the time was Division Two, here we come, but it fell apart, and it fell apart spectacularly. Uh, Rangers just narrowly. Uh, missed out on promotion that season, but Brentford in World Cup year got relegated. Now back down to Division Four. Dunnett had spent a fortune on the on the previous five or six years, and uh, pretty much he wanted out. Uh, so the loans that he had put into the club. So this is a really important thing to remember. He'd put in loans into Brentford Football Club. He'd not just written out a cheque from his personal bank account and just keep the club tidied over. They were all loans into the football club and he wanted out. So there was a meeting between the two chairmen uh, of Brentford and Queen's Park Rangers. Rangers ground at the time, Loftus Road was a dump. It was had a main stand and it had cinder uh, and uh, terracing all around the other three sides. It's completely unrecognisable from the ground it is today, Loftus Road. So Jim Gregory, the, the QPR chairman at the time, hatched a plan, uh, we've done it, to say, right, OK, we'll move in with you. We'll sell Loftus Road for housing uh, and then we'll just basically come in. But it then further escalated. Actually, it would be, we'll buy Brentford out shares everything the lot the ground Brentford will be no more uh this eventually got out in the in the public domain and as you can imagine there was a massive furore a, a massive protest at the game against South End the biggest crowd of the season uh, came out at the time funny enough the players uh, had put that adversity because they might be on the dole because let's face it Queen's Park Rangers are going for promotion that season in the third division a lot of the Brentford players in the fourth division uh, might be facing the dole uh, they go on this massive uh, unbeaten run at the same time um, what happened was that Dunnett with withdrew the offer to, to Gregory that that broke down the fans uh, managed to raise uh, some money towards this but then Ron Blindle came in with a loan of over £100,000 at the mm -hmm. time, which is a huge amount of money on relatively good terms uh, to try and keep the club afloat. So it was a massive exercise in, in, in fan um, engagement in terms of getting the supporters together to try and get rid of Jack Dunnett, who decided enough was enough. And, and, and Dunnett was a football sociopath. 
you know, fans were just only a byproduct to him. He wanted to see his team succeed in the same way that Ron Nodes wanted to do the same thing. You know, fa fans were irrelevant. It didn't really matter where clubs played their football. It's about status and about the here and the now. Whereas like Brentford fans, obviously were steeped in tradition, at the time of the, the proposed takeover, uh, Brentford were a much bigger club than Queen's Park Rangers. Rangers had never even been in the, the top flight at that point. Uh, and Gregory thought to himself, well, Brentford's a first division ground, which it was. It was holding 37,000 uh, without any problems whatsoever. I could just move Queen's Park Rangers in there and then there wouldn't be a problem. Uh, fortunately, the fans saw that, decided enough was enough and managed to really sort of uh, rally round everyone. But the, the problem was it, it killed the club's ambition for the next 25 years yeah. because yeah. afterwards there was a, a penny-pinching attitude towards anything. I think at the start, this is un understandable. They've got to repay this loan from Blindle and uh, the repayment term will come up uh, at some point. Uh, so they scrap the youth team, they scrap the reserves, you know, overnight stays, are, uh, a thing of the past, you'd be, um, you know, down to the bare bones. At one point we had to field Gordon Phillips as a substitute, uh, outfield substitute, and he's a goalkeeper for us. You know, <laughs> we had two fantastic goalkeepers in Chick Brody and Gordon Phillips and a squad of about 13, 14 so we were knocking, you know, the crowds had dwindled down from, you know, the early 60s when we were going for promotion to the second division for about 13,000, 14,000 a game. They'd gone down to about four or 5,000. And that would be the case right the way through. And actually, you can say that was only sort of fixed, so to speak, for want of a better phrase, until we got promoted from League One. So that, that moment in history for Brentford was huge. Mm. Uh, and it took 25 years for us to get promoted to the old second division again in 1992, but it took a quarter of a century to actually move the dial from where, where we were. During that 67, 68 season, despite all that was going on in the background, Brentford finished in 14th place. And in the following seasons, profits from transfers, FA cup runs and goals from John O'Mara meant that stability was achieved both on and off the pitch. And in 1972, Brentford were promoted back into the third division. But O'Mara's sale to Blackburn Rovers at the start of the 72-73 season was, for Mark, a sign of a lack of ambition. Um, we missed out on a, a fantastic opportunity in the early 70s to build the crowds up again and to get rid of that you-don't-want-to-go-up attitude by the club winning promotion in 1972 from Division 4, a year after a magnificent cup run to the fifth round, uh, the crowds were averaging eleven or 12,000 in Division 4, which is were rivaling Fulham and Queen's Park Rangers at the time, and they were two divisions higher. They made the massive mistake of cashing in on John O'Mara, the leading top scorer from the season before, and were relegated instantly back down to the fourth division 12 months later. Now, that was the biggest signal of lack of amb ambition shown uh, to the supporters that you could ever have. And has people that, just that, turned on Brentford. Has that all come as a consequence of that sort of financial period in the, in the late Yeah, 60s? it's the direct consequence because, you know, five years earlier, the club nearly went out of existence. Mm -hmm. And then there was a small-minded mentality then because actually the loan had been paid off. It took four and a half years to pay off. It was an amazing sum, you know, but uh, people... Uh, they. We talk about, you know, rattling buckets in the, the, the Bees United era, you know, 10, 15 years ago. They were doing that in the late 60s. There was yeah. a golden gate at the at Griffin Park where people were going to a turnstile, the golden gate, and they would pay more than the entrance fee just so that the balance could go to the football club to try and pay off the debt. But however, that creeped into the operational structure of the football club so much that they would take any offer going for star players. Now, John O'Mara to Brentford was worth more to us as a, a medium-term prospect to try and get us out of Division 3 again into Division 2 
than it was just taking the first offer that came along from Blackburn yeah. Rovers, who at the time were bottom of the third division themselves. So it was a real signal to to, to the local population that Brentford weren't really interested in, in, in going places. And by then, they'd seen Queen's Park Rangers get promoted in 1968. They'd seen them come back down. And then, you know, in 72, Queen's Park Rangers went back up again. So, you know, thousands of fans in West London either deserted the football club or wouldn't be interested in, in, in picking it up. And it's only taken, I would say, until the last four or five years uh, that we are now not looked as as a joke in West London footballing terms. And we're now serious players. And, and the league table at the moment, you know, stands that out. Brentford spent the next few seasons bouncing between the third and fourth tiers before Martin Lange, then chairman of the football club, revolutionised English football when he persuaded the Football League to introduce the playoffs and then revolutionised Brentford with the appointment of Steve Perryman as manager in 1987. The first of nine failed playoff campaigns started with defeat to Tranmere at the end of the 1991 season, but Brentford would go up the following year after final day delight at Peterborough. People that weren't around in the mid-80s don't realise how bad a state professional football was in in this country. You know, average crowds for top flight Division One matches would be nine, ten, eleven thousand. You know, as as a as a even the bigger clubs like Arsenal, Manchester United, Liverpool, they were getting between twenty five to forty thousand, and it would only be the big, really big derby or needle games that you get the sort of crowds that you you would get nowadays. Um, Football was in a hell of a state. and the playoffs allowed four extra teams uh, a chance uh, uh, maybe get a promotion. Uh, but then what that did, it had a knock-on effect that a team that was maybe the middle of March and in mid-table, but in a, a good, decent run of form, prior to 1986, then you know the last seven or eight games would just be maybe building for next season, blooding youngsters uh, that may have not had a chance earlier in the season, they would have a genuine chance of getting promoted if they could put a run together to get them into sixth place or seventh place, depending on what division that they were in, uh, and actually getting promoted. So it absolutely revolutionised football in this country from 1986 onwards. And it was exciting. Um, Before 1990, the playoff finals were both two legs, Mm-hmm. So, you know, you would you would have a crack on your home ground of trying to get get promoted in a, 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 a two legged scenario. So Martin Lange had that, came up with that idea and managed to persuade the Football League to introduce it. But the irony is it took us so long to actually <laughs> use the system that he he actually invented himself. Hmm. In the in the following season, Brentford gained promotion to the second tier. Um, I've seen some videos from that away end in Peterborough when Gary Blissett gets the winner. I, I wish I was there. <laughs> I wish I was alive to be there. What what emotions are, are going through your mind when Brentford are on the brink of promotion back to the second tier for the first time in donkey's years? The important uh, the important thing that happened in 1987 that Martin Lange appointed Steve Perryman as manager in succession to Frank McClintock. He took over a football club that uh, didn't have a reserve team didn't have a, really a youth team to its name. Uh, the, things had stagnated in, in the final 18 months of Frank McClintock's uh, tenure as manager. We had a part-time physio. These were none of the things that Steve Perryman, after his near 20-year career at Tottenham, uh, was used to. So he, he, he went around and he revolutionised the, the football club in that, in that summer. Uh we had a whole exciting list of apprentices that were, were taken on that season. The assistant manager, Phil Holder, an old friend of Steve's uh, from his Tottenham days, took over as assistant manager. And we started to play good, decent football. That culminated in us getting to the FA Cup quarterfinals mm-hmm. in 1989. Uh, and there was a, starting to be a buzz about the football club again after a long period of, of stagnation. Martin Lange and Steve Perriman fell out in 1990 over uh, finally in a transfer uh, of a player that um, Perriman wanted, but Lange wouldn't sanction. So he left and Holder took over. Um, In two years later, Phil Holder changed the style of football, more direct, more physical, 
um, and got us promoted to back up to the top two tiers for the first time in 38 years. It was amazingly done when I consider on the early days of April, we were in sixth place. We'd just drawn nil-nil at Reading at Elm Park in midweek. The team were booed off. Um, but the Brentford won their last six games and got yeah. promoted on the final day of the season. It was incredible. For for a person like me who'd not been to uh, many games outside of London at the time as a teenager, to, to, to have the luck, and I do look back on it now as luck, to see our team clinch the third division championship uh, with a goal from Gary Blissett. And I can remember it, you know, there was a... Terry Evans hit the bar, it came back down, Gary Blissett nodded it in. You get that, as you do at football matches, a, a brief couple of seconds of silence, and then everyone realises what's happening. You know, there was 5,000 fans there. It was incredible. We held out. Jamie Bates went up front, you know, a very uncustom role for him. Dean Holsworth was substituted. We all realised in our heart of hearts that, you know, he'd be going uh, to other places that summer. Uh, it was an incredible achievement, given given the odds, really. And um, to be part of that was absolutely fantastic. And I didn't realise it now, because when you're a kid, you just think, you know, trophies might happen every every season, because that's what you dream of when you're a kid yeah. with your local football team. Uh, and we'd had that sort of four or five years of very, very good success. And this culminated into into the winning the championship. Uh, you look back on that now and you think how lucky, how lucky you were to be on that day to witness it, because actually they don't come very often at all. Brentford's return to the second tier for the first time since 1954 was short-lived. Immediate relegation was followed in the next two seasons by even more playoff heartbreak, this time made even more devastating by structural changes in the Premier League and eventual relegation back to the bottom tier in 98. And then, and then afterwards, David, David Webb takes over and you look for an immediate return and then it's more playoff heartbreak against Huddersfield and then the next season it's more playoff heartbreak against Crewe. And then the next season, it's relegation. At that point, are you just thinking this club is cursed? The Premier League wants to reorganise in 1995. It's the amount of teams in the Premier League from 22 to 20. So that means that season, only the champion gets promoted automatically. And then the next four teams gets put in the playoffs. Mm -hmm. Guess who finishes second that season? Us. <laughs> No, you can't. You can't write it. Really, we should have been promoted in '95. Again, we were unlucky. Uh, Huddersfield, you know, they 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 came over us in in two legs. You know, they 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 won out over in in two legs, and that's probably the lowest I've felt at football because I don't remember leaving that ground for a good 15, 20 minutes after the final whistle. Just mm. sat down on the tips of New Road, just trying to take it in because we'd finished second. Yeah. And, and in any other season since uh, the since two went up from the old third tier, you know, we'd not been promoted. So, we, you know, it felt worse to me that season than probably getting relegated the, the two years before. Yeah. Um, it was really a massive kick in the teeth. Yeah. So you spin forward the next couple of years and... Webb manages to make a couple, another couple of signings, but we sold key players. We sold Forster mid for midway through the campaign because Forster's agent basically said to to Lange that Bosman was coming in that year, and uh, Forster's agent gently put it about that you know he's going to leave to uh, to a foreign club in the summer for nothing, so that put the wind up the club. Uh, so Forster was sold for for seven hundred thousand pound. Actually, immediately after that, the club fared okay. We were still at the top. We were still doing all right for the next five or six games. But the lack of squad uh, told its own story. We lost the last four games of the league campaign. We went into the playoffs in a really bad shape, really. But then uh, we managed to get through over Bristol City, over two legs, and then play at Wembley against Crew. We were terrible that day. Brian Statham was sent off. Uh, we lost one nil, but it could have been four. And I don't think any Brentford fan in the crowd that day would have uh, would have begrudged Crew that amount of margin of victory. Anyway, they really did take us to pieces over that ninety minutes, and that really was 
the the final throw of the dice as far as Martin Lange was concerned at Brentford Football Club. He'd got all of his money back um, and Webb promised he'd do that in the four years. So uh, Brentford's football, uh, the financial position in 1997 was a very healthy one compared to most other football clubs and big names that have been transferred like Carla Saba, Nicky Forster, Martin Granger, um, left the, the club bank balance in very healthy position. And as a reward, Martin Lange uh, pretty much gave away the football club to David Webb. Uh, he, I think he got it for around 25 grand, which is peanuts, even then. Mm-hmm. Um, but, the st- you know, a lot of the players left on Bosman's. So you had the likes of Paul Smith, Barry Ashby, uh, Brian Statham, some left on Bosman's, others left on tribunal fixed fees. Again, more money coming in, but the heart was ripped out of the team. Mm-hmm. And despite promises of this cons- consortium uh, taking over of Webb, John Hartson, uh and uh, Tony Swaysland, um we got relegated 12 months later. So it was one of the most eventful uh, five-year periods in the club's history. And actually, we just backed down to to where we'd been uh, for the first time in twenty years. So in, in nineteen ninety eight was the first time Brentford were in the in the bottom division for for twenty years. And you're thinking to yourself, "We're just I'm just destined to support a lower league club." So in nineteen ninety eight, Brentford were back in the bottom tier for the first time in twenty years after two successive playoff defeats and then relegation. Enter Ron Nodes. By Ron Nodes coming into the football club, we went from the frying pan into the fire. Ron Nodes couldn't get an overdraft with Nat West Bank uh, because he wanted a huge overdraft. So we got one from Barclays Bank instead. So we got a, a four and a half million pound overdraft from Barclays Bank because Ron Nodes wanted to spend his way out of Division Three. Uh, and that's exactly what he did. We made a loss of a, a million and a half pounds in that first season. Uh, we bought a lot of young, exciting footballers from non-league. Uh, we played some really attractive football. Nodes was the manager himself. He'd been itching to do something like this. His ego had said to himself that he wanted to to do this. But what he did was clever. He surrounded himself by three coaches. So it wasn't just him at the training ground. It was the likes of uh, Ray Lewington, Brian Sparrow, uh, you know, lots of good qualified people that could actually take training and he could bounce ideas off. But the the final thing was that Ron had to say. Now, when he first came in, it was like a breath of fresh air. You know, they were singing songs about wrong nodes, wearing white wigs, but then it suddenly dawned on Brentford fans that actually he wasn't writing checks in the same way as done it. He was just running up an overdraft so it was the equivalent of just going down to a fancy restaurant in the West End and having a, a great meal, but just whacking it on the credit card. So that's exactly what Ron Nodes was doing. Now, his idea was very similar to Dunnett's, get promoted up through the leagues, and then the money will, will look after itself. In the meantime, there was a stadium project with Martin Lange, who was still on the board and would been tasked with getting Brentford to a new stadium, which was out in Western International Market. Relationships with the council weren't fantastic. Ron Nodes was a very outspoken figure. Someone with money has, has licensed sometimes to run their mouth. So there were no consequences for him to say whatever he liked. Uh, that didn't play well with the local authority. And... He eventually, after three years tenure at the football club, wanted to move us to Woking, 40 miles away. Again, like Dunnett, he was a football sociopath. He wasn't wasn't bothered about where Brentford played their ground, uh, you know, played their matches. He wasn't bothered about where they played their matches at all. He was, all he was bothered about was keeping the team going and maybe trying to get uh, Brentford into a higher state. And at the time, the overdraft was getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And we'd got ourselves into a worse position under Nodes than we were under Lange and David Webb in the early 90s. Uh, so it was becoming very, very difficult uh, for the football club. Once Nodes stepped down as 
manager in November 2000, the spending taps were very quickly turned off. The training ground was moved from somewhere that was costing a fortune to a university facility in Surbiton. Expensive loan players were sent back to their respective clubs almost overnight. Coaches were let go of. So once Ron wasn't in charge of the playing side of things, he lost interest Mm -hmm. and there was a a belt tightening exercise. Now, this obviously you've got a fantastic bit of real estate in Griffin Park in West London, and that's his way out. That's his way off, way out to pay off the overdraft. Uh, So that's why the, you know, moving to Woking was an attractive option. You know, he even paid options, uh, cash options to Kingstonian and Woking that were non-refundable uh, as 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 potential sort of uh, plan Bs and, and Cs. Uh, you know, in, in, incredible when you think back at it now. Mm. Um, again, the, the fans protested and uh, the league would sort of outlaw such a move. Uh, but it, by the time... Uh, Ron Nodes uh, stepped down and uh, was in the final sort of stages of his uh, uh, tenure at Brentford on an operational basis. You know, the club was was crippled with debt, absolutely crippled. And it was a really hard time. And uh, amazingly, he managed to get to the playoffs in Division 2 in 2002 with Steve Koppel. It's one of the things about this football club. There is never a dull moment. There is something always lurking, good or bad, around the corner. <laughs> Any given any given time, and that's one of the joys of, of supporting the football club, I guess. The playoff final loss to Stoke in Nodes' first season in charge is, for Brentford fan Natalie Sawyer, her worst memory. Probably the one of the worst seasons was, was the Steve Coppel season when we lost in the playoff final to Stoke. And it, a, a team that was so brilliant and you felt was so unlucky to miss out on automatic promotion to then head to Cardiff full of optimism thinking that we're going to win this one. And we just performed so badly. Bees United wanted to get rid of nodes, but at the same time, didn't want to let the club's future be in the hands of bad owners. So lose out to the play- uh, in the playoffs this time to Stoke. Um, from nodes' tenure at the club, it became apparent that a new owner whose interest in the club may not be at heart weren't with, that that wasn't, that wasn't the thing we needed. Um, could you tell me a bit about the protest against nodes? and the eventual acquisition of Brentford by Bees United in, in 2003. Yeah, so uh, fans have become tired of nodes uh, after he'd stepped down and after all the the promises and the, the stadium, uh, new stadium deal evaporating and trying to get us to move to Woking. You know, nodes was not a popular figure at Griffin Park. And in 2002, the talk was about can we take it over ourselves? Which is a shame because perhaps if we'd have had that idea four or five years before, it would have been an interesting proposition without any debt. But this time, Bees United, after after bias had been reconstituted and had had the brainchild to set up a supporters trust. So Bees United were formed in April 2001. And then a year later, John McGlashan was put onto the board, uh, the main Brentford board. They they paid a sum of money to the football club, which was under, underwritten by a, a Brentford fan at the time, that John McGlashan would go on the board as Bees United chairman uh, and one of the renewing, basically, a, a director, supporter director link that had been missing for a, for a long time, for about 35 years. And the uh, the offer was by notes. He, he said, OK, if you want to take on the overdraft, I'll give you the club for nothing. Uh, and that's uh, effectively what happened. Bees United took over the operational running of the, the football club. They didn't own the football club outright, but the actual day-to-day operation was uh, taken on by Bees United in 1993. So Ron Node stepped back as chairman, uh, the, the chief executive at the time moved on. And actually it was a supporters, a set of supporters that were on the, the, uh, the board of directors. Um, but it was a very difficult period uh, because there was a, a, a lack of money, really. And that's the, the biggest problem supporter-owned football clubs at that level face is cash flow. There is no white knight to keep them going. You have to be very, very fortunate. And 
um, the bill, the wage bill that Wally Downs was given, the, the playing budget in 2003 and 2004, was around £650,000 for the whole year. Now, that wouldn't even get a, uh, a, you a signing on bonus for some of the players nowadays. Uh, it was pretty much a relegation budget. Uh, and at the time that they sacked Wally Downs in March 2004, we were five points adrift from safety in the third tier. But then in comes in Martin Allen, a real force of nature. Uh, and we we stayed up on the final day of the season. We only lost one match, I think it was, in the in in the remaining uh, nine games of his tenure that season, and completely shook the club up from head to toe. He was the effective owner of the football club then. He ran things from top to bottom, uh, and then for the next two seasons, we would have a remarkably successful uh, two years. We would get into the League Two playoffs. Uh, sorry, we would get into the League One playoffs two seasons in a row, Mm -hmm. we would get to fifth round of the cup twice. It was uh, an incredible time. And and, and Martin did put a smile back on a lot of Brentford fans' faces. He, his teams were very much like his own persona. Uh, you know, Martin would kick every ball from the touchline. Martin Allen's teams were strong, in your face, aggressive, 90 minutes, work rate. They really were an extension of the supporter. And even now, you know, I'm sure Martin Allen is one of the most popular Brentford managers. Yeah. Uh, when looked upon by supporters, even though we didn't actually win anything uh, in his two and a half years at the club. So it was a very, uh, it was sort of a bittersweet time. You know, the, the, the football club was run by its supporters, not f- not finally free of Ron Nodes yet because he still owned the ground and he still owned the majority of the shares. But um, they were operationally in control of it. You know, we, we ran our own football club. But in the end, cash, uh, you know, does it tell its own story and, you know, Effectively, what you could say is Bees United ran out of money. But just going back to Martin Allen, were those two playoff losses in 0405 and 0506, were they especially horrid because of the relationship between the fans and, and Martin Allen? I think that they were both playoff campaigns were incredibly dip- disappointing to miss out on. I would say the second one more than the first because we had been top of the table. Mm-hmm. That's our yeah. In uh, in March or so of League One, and it really the wheels fell off badly. Mm-hmm. So in very similar circumstances to 1997, where there wasn't great investment. You know, we had a, a, a fantastic goal scorer in DJ Campbell that kind of burst on the scene. We bought him from Yedding for for peanuts, and then we sold him two days after his two goals against Sunderland in the FA Cup. Two minutes to go, and it's DJ Campbell, and he's away from Collins, and he scored the goal that surely has put Brentford into the fifth round of the FA Cup. And the reason is we needed the money. We needed yeah. the liquidity. Um, so without him, uh, it was it was very, very difficult. It was very similar that we'd gone on a decent run after his departure. Uh, but actually, that just sort of fell away. And there, I do remember a midweek defeat to, to Gillingham where the team played quite badly and lost and we never sort of recovered uh, our form that we'd had over the, the winter period. And we, we lost to, to Swansea over two legs. And um, it was obvious to everyone that Martin was going to look probably elsewhere. With Bees United running out of money, Brentford were relegated to League Two under Scott Fitzgerald after Leroy Rossini was sacked before Christmas. Uh, again, Brentford... Uh, the new manager coming in, Leroy Rossinia, was probably given a relegation budget and that's what we got. And actually, the 2006 and 2007 season was probably the worst on record for Brentford uh, probably since the 1920s, if I'm being honest. It was just a terrible, terrible season. We We won six games all season. 
the uh, the performances from start to finish were just were just abysmal, and um, it was a campaign to 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 see the back of really being relegated at Easter really means that your players have had no heart, no bottle, no guts, and they've 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 simply you know given up, uh, and that's what it felt like from the terraces. Terry Butcher replaced Fitzgerald for the 07-08 season, but poor form at the start of the campaign meant that the prospect of playing non-league football in the following year was becoming very real. Butcher's assistant Andy Scott took over to steady the ship. Right, and then so for the following season, Terry Terry Butcher takes over, but he doesn't have the best start, and then it's Andy Scott um, who steadies the ship, and obviously the following year is promotion at Darlington. Um, When we get promoted to League One, as champions in 2009, was it starting to look like Brentford were turning a corner both on and off the pitch? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the appointment of Terry Butcher was a disaster. Mm-hmm. He didn't know much about the English league scene. He was relying on a lot of the picks that were given to him by Andy Scott, his assistant. They thought they'd come in and do a job. Uh, he wasn't a very good manager for Brentford Football Club. It's, it's just as simple as that. He'd had some success in... Uh, over north of, the, north of the border in Scotland, but actually his record in England was was pretty poor and it, so it proved to be. We couldn't afford to sack both Butcher and Scott. So Scott was the, the interim manager um, by a stroke of fortune, really, but he grabbed it with both hands. And uh, the first game, we won 3-0 at Wrexham and re- he really did turn the, 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 the playing performances of the club around. We'd got into the lower reaches of League Two by that point. We were getting crowds of just over 3,000 for games. And uh, it was a pretty grim time. We were looking at the conference, you know, mm-hmm. we, we, at that point. We were looking at National League status at that point. It was a very live, you know, prospect at the time. And, and Andy came in as interim, turned it around, got the pride back. I remember the fans singing, we've got our Brentford back uh, later that season. Uh, and that only happens when the players... Uh, start fighting for the shirt and for themselves and for the manager. With those three key elements, uh, Brentford got promoted back to League One within 18 months. We were champions of League Two, um, you know, playing playing uh, uh, football that suited that division, that got us out of that division and basically got us out of a slump that we'd, we, we'd been for that previous three or four years. At the same time, Matthew Benham's involvement and investment in the club were both increasing. Could you talk a little bit about Matthew Benham's role in that in that turnaround? Yeah, so Matthew's first investment in Brentford Football Club was actually to enable Bees United to uh, restructure the finances so they could uh, take over the football club and, and get the majority shareholding. His initial investment was half a million pound in late 2005. And his investment had been growing and growing and growing to the point where his capital allowed us to buy out Barclays of the uh, loan facilities that they'd uh, given Brentford Football Club. Also buy out Ron Node's uh, involvement uh, in terms of taking over the overdraft and uh, clearing the uh, any sort of uh, debts that we'd had there so um and his involvement in the in the football club had increased and increased and increased and it got to a point in the the summer of 2010 that uh, a meeting between Matthew Benham and Andy had taken place and Matthew asked him how what was what would be the playing budget to get you into the league 1 playoffs now sort of Andy called uh called a figure of three and a half million pounds Matthew called his bluff and said, okay, you can have it. So that became another big step up in the financial involvement of Matthew Benham into Brentford Football Club. And it actually by then had put it into the territory that Bees United in terms of their day-to-day running of, of the football club. We owed Matthew so much money. It was effectively his football club anyway. Yeah. So uh, we bought badly in the summer of 2010. There were a lot of things that happened off the pitch uh, that contributed to actually maybe Andy's demise. And I know Matthew's looked back on it recently and perhaps may have uh, given him some more time. But it got to a point after a 4-1 defeat at Dagenham and Redbridge where he basically said, I'm not going to put any more money in 
with Andy as, as manager. So faced with that, with your biggest benefactor putting in money, the choice is already made. He's he's got to go, and that's when Andy was sacked, and then Andy uh, and then Andy left with uh, Terry Bullivant, his assistant, and then uh, Nick Forster. Nicky Forster came in as uh, interim manager in that period. Uh, so we've got a lot to be thankful actually for Andy in his in his tenure at the football club because he turned it around under some budget restraints. He was he was given a bigger budget than perhaps some in Bees United uh, wanted at that time, uh, but actually he got us promoted as champions in that in that season. And uh, you know who knows? We there's a lot of big football clubs that have been down in Conference North and Conference South mm. uh, back then. It could have been us, so yeah. we owe him actually a great deal. And then in the in the summer of 2011, Uwe Rosler takes over from Nicky Forster. Um, another mid-table finish in the in the following season. Matthew Benham becomes majority shareholder, and then it's the next season, 2012-13. Um, I I have nightmares even speaking about this season. But Brentford man, uh, promotion charge, final day heartbreak. We all know the story. Um, I, I when I wrote this question, I was I was thinking uh, the question is if there ever was a month of football to sum up Brentford Football Club, it's is that month. But it sounds like there's there's been a, there's been a couple more times as well in your in your time as a Brentford fan. <laughs> there's, there's been lots. I think Uve coming in as manager was a real step change for the football club. Uh, he was talking about promotion. He wasn't talking about consolidation in League One, finishing mid mid table, maybe kicking on. From the moment he came into that football club, he was talking about Brentford getting promoted. So the mindset at the training ground changed almost overnight. There was increased investment from Matthew Benham. Mark Warburton came in as a sporting director. The facilities at Jersey Road, the training ground, it improved. There were some good quality players brought in, Jonathan Douglas, uh, Clayton Donaldson. We finished, we did finish, ironically, in mid-table in League One that year, but actually the, the psyche of the football club had changed. So the fact is that during the summer of 2012, it was patently obvious that Bees United couldn't uh, continue in the manner that they would in terms of operational football club. And, we, and they agreed to bring forward the purchase of the football club to Matthew Benham uh, early so he could uh, take over and become the de facto owner with uh, Bees United as the, having a special share. And that season was a, a fantastic season. It was heartbreaking. Uh crippling emotionally after after what happened uh, you know you couldn't have written the script for that final game against Doncaster at this point in the podcast I'd advise all Brentford fans to skip forward by a minute to avoid some PTSD Brentford have a penalty in added time if they score they are up and Brentford will be playing in the championship Doncaster Rovers will be in the playoffs goodness me what nerve the penalty taker will need, Paul Walsh. It's Marcello Trotter, Jeff, who's been on as a substitute, has taken it. There was a few words between two or three players about who was going to take it. Uwe Rossler was pointing, I think, to Trotter, and he's... Oh! He's in a crossbar! And he's come down! And... Oh, my... What a... What... Jeff, he's in a bar, he's come down, bounced about a foot over the line, outside the goal, and now they're on a... Painter is breaking away. They're going to score to make it 1-0. They've scored. Coppinger has made it 1-0 at the other end. I don't believe what I've just witnessed, Jeff. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Marcelo Trotter is on loan from Fulham. He's hit the crossbar with a penalty awarded. He's been the man in four. He's scored three in his last four. That penalty would have sent Brentford up. The ball's rebounded. Doncaster have gone to the other end. They've scored the goal. They're going up. Uh, and they're going up as champions of... It took me a very long time to to actually watch that goal back, having having on on screen, having seen it in in real life. I remember being in the tunnel after the final whistle, and all I could do was go up and shake Brian Flynn's hand and say, "Congratulations, well done on getting promoted." I couldn't think of anything else to do because I was just searching, I was groping for something that would give me some consolation. Mm-hmm. You know, be the bigger man. You know, they've they we we've basically lost our promotion that was there right in front of us, and they've gone up the other end within forty seconds and then nicked it themselves. Um, we go, we have this seesaw match with Swindon Town in the playoffs, 
which actually the second leg was fantastic. Yeah. Um, but we approached the playoff final all wrong. There were still the ghosts of Doncaster Rovers match hanging around. Mm-hmm. Yeovil embraced the occasion. They touched the trophy. They had a team group on the pitch at Wembley. Brentford were very much the opposite. The message was low-key, don't think about the trophy. We're not going, you know, big on this. Yeovil treated it as a cup final to be enjoyed and embraced, and we didn't. We we only started playing when we went two goals down. My memory of that is actually uh, is Paul Hayes coming on a substitute and actually putting in a decent shift and us getting a goal back with Harley Dean. Yeah. But we weren't quite good enough. You know, Yeovil deserved it. And uh, but in but in retrospect, that is the best thing that ever happened to this football club, us losing at Wembley. It sounds a ridiculous thing to say, but actually there was no time for tears, no time to wallow, because actually four weeks later the players were back at pre-season training. It really was as simple as that. And then we would go on to get promoted to League One after all that heartbreak uh, against Yeovil and against Doncaster. It made the, the players mentally tough, a really great group of lads that really fought for each other, really cared about the club. A lot of them live locally in Brentford as well. So actually, they could tell what it meant to the local population Yeah, in getting promoted. It really was... Uh, a throwback to the old eras where players would just live around the corner and they'd be playing for their local team. It actually was in 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 when we won League One in 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 that season. You know the players did care. They really did care, and they were good footballers. And um, you know we we got promoted despite the change of manager midway through the the season. And um, you know we were we were worthy we were worthy promotion winners that season. 2014-15 saw Brentford back in the championship for the first time since 1992 and it was a memorable campaign. Even though it was announced in February that Mark Warburton would be leaving at the end of the season, the Bees finished in fifth place but yet again lost out in the playoffs. Middlesbrough beat Brentford comfortably over two legs and added to the wins they'd already had over us in the season. Ex-Brentford captain Jonathan Douglas agreed that drawing Borough was probably the worst tie we could have got. I think if we had got Norris that season, who I think they went on and won the playoffs, I think if we got them... Over two legs, you know, we might have beat them because, you know, I think we've done well away from home to them. I know the change manager since that, but uh, with Alex Neal coming in. But, um, yeah, I just think Middlesbrough just had her number that season. Hindsight's a wonderful thing, but I think actually Matthew should have sacked him in February and not let him continue on as manager, regardless of how we would have ended up that season. But probably maybe operationally for, for Matthew, it was too early. To try and get a grip back on the on the football club with uh, with both Frank McPaul and leaving and perhaps Warburton leaving it uh, would have maybe been a bridge too too far at the time. But you know there was a lot of anti smart odds, a lot of anti Matthew Benham feeling at the training ground uh, by players and staff. So much so that actually Matthew didn't feel comfortable with going into the training ground. Uh, okay. And considering the guy that's paying the checks paying the wages that's an incredible scenario when you think about it yeah. um so you you know that the, the uh, Warburton galvanized the fact that smart odds thought that Brentford were a mid-table championship team and tried to shove that analysis down their throat and uh into some respects he did do that really by finishing fifth I just want to I want to get this right with the with the data-driven approach at Brentford that that came in free Warburton Matthew Matthew's company Smart Odds provides uh, statistical analysis for companies, for football clubs, and for Matthew's own activities in professional gambling syndicates. So the data that they collect and they've been collecting uh, has been widespread. One of the reasons I believe that Warburton left was that Matthew wanted to introduce more of this into the football club in terms of uh, tracking players and getting players into the football club, whereas Warburton was more of a traditionalist and also wanted the final veto on signings. He wants to be the manager, not the head coach. Right. So that's a, a big reason why Mark left the football club. So it actually, after three years of actually physically owning the football club, for the first time in the summer of 2015, Matthew was actually allowed to use his ideas to the full 
and uh, players that were recommended by Smart Oz were brought in. So there were several players brought in to replace the ones that were were leaving. Uh, there was a cash flow crisis in the, that summer as well at the at the football club. We lost a huge amount of money, uh, Brentford, in the 2014-15 season, and someone had to be sold. Uh, it was looking like that player was going to be Hotter. Mm-hmm. But Jonathan Douglas uh, went into what we would call a quite a meaty challenge with Hotter in the first day of the season against Ipswich Town and crocked him. Mm-hmm. And uh, they started looking for alternatives that they needed to ship out. And eventually it was going to be Andre Gray. So he moved to Burnley and that eased Brentford's cash flow problems considerably. Up until that summer, money was not an object at Brentford Football Club uh, on a day-to-day basis. Um, but um, from that summer, there was a, a, a sort of a cleaning up uh issue cleaning up episode that needed to take place really uh so money was a, a little bit tight for the first time and uh smart odds recommended uh algorithms recommended some players other players were good other players were not so good mm-hmm. for every johan barbe you had a uh you had other players that just weren't up to the uh, up to the mark so it was very much a learning curve for operationally and don't forget by this point you know phil giles and uh rasmus ankerson were put in as coast uh directors of football they were both treading the water themselves in terms of uh running uh, a football club a championship football club at that level and it was sticky and it was only uh you know marinas was a mistake um Lee Carsley came in on a very interim basis uh, and then famously on his first game in charge uh, after the final whistle handed his noticing <laughs> to uh, Phil, Phil Giles and, 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 and Benham and, and Ankerson after they had persuaded him really hard to actually take it on on an interim basis. So the, the search was on again for another mm-hmm. manager. And thankfully, we found Dean Smith who had been working really well at Walsall and he came in and he tightened things up as well. Carsley, Carsley's contribution shouldn't be overlooked actually. We were in trouble when mm-hmm. he when he took over as manager and he uh, made training uh, a, a lot more high tempo. He uh, shipped out players that he didn't think were good enough to be in the first team squad, uh, got things a lot tighter at the back uh, and then uh, steadied the ship for want of a, a a better phrase, saw out his notice and then Dean Smith took over and then took the club up to another level, I would say, as well. Mm-hmm. How important is the, the data-driven approach at Brentford? It's, it's incredibly important because it's actually giving us an advantage, which is becoming increasingly difficult these days because all the cl- top clubs are doing it. But it actually has given us the edge to get us where we are today and to try and find that pocket, that area of untapped talent or maybe where people are underrating certain players in in areas or how we uh, set up against the opposition on a match day so actually anyone that doesn't get into this in a big way is really missing out so smith smith takes over we're in the championship get a good three years in the championship for consolidation he obviously then goes off to villa thomas frank comes in 11th place first season then then we get that season with the bmw um in my opinion, best front three in, in championship history. That forward line is up there with the very best in any period of history in the football club. You know, you can talk about Blissett and Holdsworth in the 90s. You can talk about Forster and Taylor in the mid-90s. You can talk about Urusu and Scott Partridge and, you know, teams that got us promoted out of Division Three, Or you've got Charlie McDonald and, you know, Jordan Rhodes... Yeah. As well, you know, there's, there's a host of other there's other strikers there. But actually, the great thing about the, the front three that we had in the BMW is that they're all quality. They're playing at a very high level. And actually, when you look at, you know, two of them, we sold them for a huge, huge yeah. amount of money. You know, Watkins going for £33 million is a phenomenal amount of money at any level of football, you know, at any level of world football. Um, and they were a joy to watch. And one of the greatest disappointments for Brentford fans is that, you know, you probably only got to see him once or twice in that promotion season, if you were lucky, if you could get a ticket. 
you know that's the thing about covid it put a real uh a virtual reality sort of aspect to towards brentford's promotion and for mm-hmm. some it only sort of hit home at the playoff final or at the playoff second leg against bournemouth where you had one of the most amazing atmospheres i've yeah. ever seen for a match that was 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 attended by 4000 people mm-hmm. so uh you know that front three had everything had everything about it. And it must have struck fear into any defence that he was coming up against. Thomas Frank's first full season in charge ends with another playoff defeat, this time in the final against Fulham. That's now nine playoff campaigns and nine playoff failures. As a younger fan, I'll always say that that loss against Fulham hurts the most, purely because it was Fulham. We could only watch on TV. The way in which we lost was just horrible. You know what? I look back on it now, and with the benefit of us getting promoted a year later, I can say this. It's nowhere near the most disappointment I felt Mm -hmm. leaving. Uh, Because, again, it felt so surreal. I was in Box Park at Wembley, not 400 yards from where the game was being played out. (laughs) And it it felt like a pre-season friendly. You know, there's no no one in the ground, apart from players, officials, photographers and the press and, and security. Um, you know, in 25 years' time, they're not going to talk about Fulham's famous 1-0 playoff victory against... Uh, they're not going to talk about Fulham's 2-1 famous victory over uh, over Brentford in the playoff final. It's going to be a forgotten match. Those playoff games under closed doors at Wembley are going to be forgotten games. And thank God, because I'll tell you what would have been worse is us playing them outside of COVID and 40,000 Fulham fans laughing at us walking down Olympic Way. Now, yeah. that would have hurt. <laughs> we, we got away with it that night. Trust me, we got away with it. So it doesn't... Uh, in, in the in Huddersfield in 95 struck a thunderbolt through me compared to losing to Fulham 1-0 in in the playoffs. And the the difference between the two for me is that I knew eventually we'd get to the Premier League because Mm -hmm. we we had the players, we had the backing and we had the ambition. Back in 95 and 97 and uh, 2007, I knew that, you know, there were certain things that were going to happen, that if we didn't get promoted that season, we were finished for a good few years. Whereas three years ago, I knew that actually we're in with a good chance. We, we, we're we up there with the best in terms of our procurement in the world, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of signing players. So it didn't give me anywhere near, you know, I got back into the car in the car park at Wembley, drove home and was disappointed, but, you know, basically the players were in, back in training in 10 days' time after that. You'll remember, you know, the playoff final was in August. We were back We were back training in pre-season later that month and we kicked off and went away, and went away again. So for me, as an old fuddy-duddy, <laughs> it doesn't even rank anywhere near the most disappointing games. Uh, uh, fortunately, because also I wasn't there either. So, and, <laughs> and neither, were, neither were the rest of the Brentford fans, you know. So, you know, we really did sort of get off lightly there. You know, I mean, imagine losing to Queen's Park Rangers or Fulham in a playoff final in front of yeah. 80,000 fans. It would be horrific. But in 2021, in front of a half-empty Wembley, Brentford finally got the playoff triumph. My cousin Jack Legan watched the game with me inside Wembley Stadium and here's what he had to say about the day. The playoff final win at Wembley in 2021 was just one of the best days of my life. Um, it it started off great. It was a nice sunny day, sat in a beer garden with drinks, but the whole time just nervous of the game that afternoon. You couldn't fully relax knowing that that's what we were going into. Um, the game itself was amazing. We got an early goal. Um, Tony stepping up to take the penalty, knowing with his record, he's not going to miss. But then at the same time thinking, if he's going to miss, it's going to be now and it's going to be disastrous. Um but he puts that away. Then we follow up with a great counter-attacking goal about 10 minutes later. And if this is a game during the regular season, you're thinking, oh, this is great. 2-0 cruising. Nothing going wrong here. Um, but you're knowing it's at Wembley. The stakes are so high. Even when they get a man sent off, you're thinking, oh, if something goes wrong here, like they could come back and win it. And with our record, you, you wouldn't put it past Brentford. But then... With 30 seconds to go in injury time, you're actually thinking, actually, we might win this. We might hold on. We might have 
might have finally won the playoffs. Um, and the tenth time through the playoffs, we do it. Um, and the scenes of celebration were just incredible. It was such an amazing day. Um, obviously, not all the fans could be there because of COVID, but the ones that were there, it will it will live long in the memory. It was such an incredible day. Um, and then waking up the next day, seeing the Premier League tweeting the lineup for the 21-22 season and Brentford's little badges there. This little club that you followed for for 10, 15 years through League One, League Two, the Championship, finally in the Premier League. It was it was amazing. You really had to pinch yourself the next day seeing that lineup. Um but yeah, it was an incredible day. Since that day at Wembley, the Bees have gone from strength to strength. Brentford finished in 13th place in their first season in the Premier League and are this year eyeing up a spot in the European places. Some famous, famous days since we've been back in the top flight. Arsenal at home. Beating United 4-0. By Brentford, who hit the front with Ivan Tony. Now he looks for Mbomo. Mbomo, it's In Chelsea 4 1. Jinnik won the header. Bissar! Can you believe it? Brentford get another. Johan Wissar just on as a substitute in place of Grand Pumo with a splendid finish. 4 1. Who'd have believed it? Chelsea all over the place. I don't think I'm ever going to top Man City away this year. That was just complete euphoria. The silver pulls it back. The score! Ivan Tony again. I feel so lucky because my uncle always tells me, he always tells me, you know, you, you come into Brentford at a point because I started supporting when I was about eight, so we were in League One, uh, League League Two, sorry. My first season was when we got promoted with Eddie Scott, and he, he always tells me, you know, you see nothing but success over this over your over your tenure as a Brentford fan. Um, yeah, so I you- feel. So- You've had nothing but buckets of champagne and ice, and you've had no flat beer yet. And <laughs> let, let me tell you, you will be looking back at the champagne moments when when the flat beer comes and think, "Why didn't I enjoy that when I when I, as much?" And this is why, when it comes to if we lose a Premier League game at the moment, for me, so what? Mm-hmm. We're in the toughest league, and it's Brentford, my team. We've come from absolutely nowhere to be absolutely spanking teams that we have no right to be left right and center uh so if we're going to lose your premier league game you're still not going to take the smile off my face because <laughs> I, I threw a sickie to go to barrow in the fa cup when the game was already being televised and we lost and i came home at five o'clock in the morning after a 16 hour round trip thinking i think i sh- I-, I should be locked up <laughs> what am I? I came out of a game we'd lost three one to Morecambe in two thousand and eight, and I genuinely thought to myself, trudging across the car park, that I was destined to support a football club that was going to be forever in the lower divisions, and I would have to just accept it, and that's my lot. I've chosen my team, that's it. So to spin forward fifteen years to think we've got into the Premier League and we've got serious aspirations about competing in Europe. It just blows my mind. And, you know, the the, the past 15 years has just been amazing. And, you know, long may that continue. Podcast Network.